Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. We are recording. I think this is, isn't this our officially going to be our last podcast of the year? Da, 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 da. Yes. We made it. Yet again. It is. This is it. This is it for 2022. It's exciting. Another 51. Impact. And it's only our second year of doing podcasts. We right? started in 2020. So we did. Did we? We started in the middle of the pandemic. I think it was right around Memorial Day. I think we were just doing a test. Oh. And next thing I know, somebody had put it on. <laughs> SoundCloud and I was like committed. It yeah. became it became a weekly. That's never right. stopped since. Yeah, it was like June of 2020 um that we started and we've done it every week ever since. Every single that? week. <laughs> Except for the one week of Christmas when we get our long winter's nap. So that's fair. It is. And sometimes sometimes we're scratching our heads over what we should talk about and sometimes it's obvious and um we thought this this one would be pretty obvious because it's the end of the year and it's the end of our year-long series, The Rising Tide, which was a series of articles that we did throughout the year about climate change and how it's affecting our area and what we have to watch out for, what we need to be aware of. And so today, back on the record button is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And cleaning his spectacles is joe shaw hi joe doing the best i can like does everybody else's glasses get as dirty like my glasses are always dirty constantly constantly i clean them and then they're already dirty so maybe that's climate is that like climate change like that could be and grunge sticking to our our glasses i wonder wonder if that has so we should put that at the top of the priority list for fighting so that's that's joe shaw hi Joe. joe shaw i'm the executive editor of the express news group and Brendan O'Reilly's here with us again. Hey, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also with us today is the lovely Michelle Trowering, the former arts editor. <laughs> and Michelle has been sort of roped into, she's been sort of sort of taken away from the arts section, which I really lament, but she's been doing a bang up job on the climate and other other topics more in the front part of the paper. And Michelle is joining us today. Um, on our podcast. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Annette. Um, I'm Michelle. I wear many hats, but I'm also the features editor. There we go. So you've been quite busy this year on the whole Rising Tide series. And, you know, you're an outdoor kind of gal. You do a lot of a lot of travel, a lot of hiking. And so you're out there a lot. And um, just wondered if climate change was something that triggered your imagination in terms of coverage. Oh, yeah, it's certainly been on my mind for years and years, as it has for so many of us. Um, But I think when we were uh, talking about series to do for 2022, after the worst of the pandemic was kind of through, we were just looking at ideas um, of what had been pushed to the back burner in newsrooms, not only our newsroom, but newsrooms across the country. And um, during a brainstorming session with Georgie Benu, our co-publisher, climate change just became a very obvious choice of, you know, let's finally take a really good deep dive into this and what it means for the East End and 
at this point, even though it is irreversible, what sorts of things can we do to help make it a little less worse? And so the rising tide was born. And and has it been um, as far as the topics that we've hit in hit on? Has it been mostly like close, coastal erosion, or is it like what are some of the big issues that st- stand out for you over what you've covered in the past um, twelve months on this series? Sure. I mean, erosion is a really, really big one, um, as are rising sea levels, worsening storms, and all of those just have devastating impacts on a peninsula in the middle of the ocean. So, um, yeah, you know, the series really started with this sort of state of affairs, a look at where are we now and where are we headed? Um, and that was really fascinating to, to look at that, um, and to revisit that throughout um, the 11 articles so far. I'm curious, Michelle, what, what jumped out at you? What Was there something that you reported along the way sometime in 2022 that really stuck with you as a piece of evidence or, or something that you learned in doing the reporting that, that sort of jumped out at you or sticks with you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the concept of, you know, not really understanding how big a problem is until it's literally in your backyard um, and how much could have been done and hasn't been. And, And that's depressing, right? I mean, it's awful when you really start to look at that closely. Um, but there's also hope on the other side of it. Um, probably my favorite story in the series that I wrote personally um, was number two, which came after that snapshot of the East End and it talked to other coastal communities. And I tried to look at communities that were similar to ours, if it was geography or a seasonal community or population and just say, hey, listen, we're having all of these conversations on the East End. What does it look like for you guys? And sure enough, it was the same stuff over and over and over again. We're talking about other communities in New York, New Jersey, um, North Carolina, Florida, California, um, the California Coastal Commission. I mean, they've been doing this stuff since the 1970s. So that was really interesting as well. And I think after those series of conversations, the bigger question for me was, you know, while each community has problems unique to it, a lot of these are the same problems. So why aren't we taking a holistic approach? Why aren't we all working together more collaboratively? And that question hasn't really been answered yet. Hey, the one thing that really jumped out at me in the reporting this year, and I think it actually Um, may have come out of one of the express sessions that we had out in Montauk as sort of in coordination with the series that we're doing that we did this year um, is I believe if I remember correctly, the figure was by 2050 Montauk will be cut off from Mm -hmm. the rest of East Hampton town by the rising waters and and East Hampton town has those maps. I think I'm, I'm right about that, right? Michelle, it was, it was 2050. You are, it's, yeah, yeah. It's very soon. And and they have those maps that show um, what they believe 
the water level rise is going to look like in 2050. And it really does take Napig out and uh, it makes Montauk an island. It, it essentially means we're going to have to figure out some strategy for, for um, keeping Montauk connected to the rest of um, East Hampton. That's, that's just, that was the most stunning thing that I may have seen all year in our newspapers. Uh, it was just, it blew me away that, that we are that close to that kind of disastrous uh, event. Right. Those uh, renderings were startling. I completely agree with you. I, I, I couldn't believe that I was looking at a series of islands. I mean, and they're already dealing with that on, I think, I don't know if this was in the series, but on Shelter Island, you know, they're having trouble with the ferry ramps, you know, on on certain high tides, they're almost unusable because the angle, I guess, is just too sharp to get on and off the ferries. That's actually the first thing I remember hearing locally that that seemed to be the, the real first impact. I remember hearing that a couple of years ago that the ferries were, were already having issues with rising waters um, and they were having to make adjustments because of that. And I remembered thinking, wow, that's a, that's a tangible bit mm -hmm. of evidence that, that mm -hmm. we're already seeing a difference. Um, it's, it's sort of worrisome that, that mm -hmm. you can already see something that simple, um, you know, having it take that kind of an effect. So. Yeah. And then the saltwater intrusion, you know, into wells and things like that from the sea level rise, you know, it's, you know, that starts to get into a real issue when people can no longer use their groundwater because it's in, been infused with salt. Um, another thing that's going to come along if it hasn't already, right? Exactly. And I mean, that's very real and that's happening right now. And it's one of those things that's not talked about as much. It's not as dramatic as homes falling into the ocean. But this is something that is affecting a lot of people that aren't living right on the ocean. They're living everywhere. You know, I wondered with the whole pandemic and so many people moving out to this area to ride it out from the city and other parts of the state and maybe the country, was that a noticeable problem in terms of accelerating climate change issues in the a heavier year-round population. Did anybody talk about there just being more people here who stayed through the pandemic? And did that change anything as far as resources or water quality or anything like that? Did that come up? No one commented on that, but I'm sure just having a larger year-round population got more eyes on this issue and it did get more people talking about it. So perhaps it was, you know, just a, a larger topic of conversation um, among the general public. But it's hard to imagine that yeah. it didn't have an impact, right. just water usage alone, you know. And also, yeah, just their pollution issues and things like that, right? Yeah. It seems like one of the big debates that we're going to have moving forward has to do with the, the, the two best ways we seem to have for dealing with erosion are beach nourishment and retreat, which are really the two most effective. And we're, we're leaving out beach hardening because I think we all agree that, that in this region, we, we simply don't see that as an option because it really does destroy beaches and, uh, and it often exacerbates the erosion problems in neighboring properties. So you're down to, do you wanna spend millions of dollars on an every 10 year basis to, to nourish the beaches and make them wider again and sort of fight mother nature by just feeding the beaches with sand? Or do we wanna acknowledge that, that some of the properties 
are built too close to the water and we're going to have to start thinking of strategies to relocate them a little further inland. Um, that's still mm. a, a debate that's, that's not, I mean, I think most people philosophically would say that retreat is the way to go, but there's a whole lot of people who think that's just not workable, right? Yeah, and you can see it from both sides. You know, you have these homeowners who spent a tremendous amount of money on their properties and they say, we're entitled to be here. So we're going to do everything that we possibly can to stay. And then you have the environmentalists who are saying, you're out of your minds. You know, Mother Nature is going to make this decision for you, whether you like it or not. So you might as well go and stop pouring millions of dollars into this land that's just, it's unrealistic to stay. Well, Michelle, you did one story about how architects are building resiliency into new homes, particularly oceanfront homes. You know, they have the updated FEMA maps that they're different than the maps from 30 years ago, and they predict what flooding to anticipate over the lifespan of that house. And they have some solutions. Do you want to talk about some of those solutions that they have to allow flooding to occur without actually losing the house that's just been built? Sure. I mean, the biggest one is breakaway walls. So they are literally walls that are designed to float away when a storm hits them um, and to minimize the damage to the rest of your house. So they're essentially being built to be destroyed, um, which is a really interesting concept. You know, if you're thinking about pouring that kind of money into a construction that you know it's inevitable, it's going to be washed away at some point. The psychology there is fascinating, I think. Um, it's like crush and, zones on cars. You know, like they build crush zones into cars so that it, so that when you have an accident, they're designed to be damaged to absorb some of the energy, yeah. So is the idea that the, that the structure itself would still remain and just the walls would get washed out? Is that what the thinking is? Exactly. Wow. Right. So it's it's the lower level of the house. And, you know, based on where you are and what the flood maps say, whether or not you can have any kind of like HVAC or, you know, any of your mechanicals down there, mostly you can't. So mm -hmm. a lot of architects as well are trying to look at that space as an opportunity of, you know, instead of this just being wasted and empty, what can we do with it? Can we create, you know, a seating area or um, a patio of some kind like so we're also seeing kind of innovations and in design mm -hmm. in that way yeah you know yeah. speaking briefly about beach nourishment which which you know i was just mentioning you know I, I think i may have left the impression that i don't think it's a good idea but i have to say you know we have a great example of a beach nourishment project that really worked and that was the project in uh, they call it Dunehampton. It was actually going to be a a village at one point, but it's just the the waterfront basically from Sagaponic into Bridgehampton, and uh, I think even into part of Watermill, where they rebuilt those beaches by actually creating a tax district for all the people who live right who own the properties right along the ocean front, and they paid to to nourish that beach, and that beach has held up very well over, you know, despite the storms and despite, you know, the, the natural erosion and the beaches come and they go over the, the course of a year, it, it's demonstrated that a beach nourishment project isn't necessarily real temporary. I mean, it can, it can help 
create some stability over at least a 10 year period. I think it was designed to last less than 10 years. It's been 10 years now. And I think it's still, the beaches are still pretty comparable to after they got done widening. them. So it's, it, I mean, it's, it's an option and, and it probably remains the, the option right now for dealing with, with, you know, climate changes, um, immediate effects. I mean, that's really what we have in the tool bag right now is, is nourishing beaches. Yeah, and it's not a strategy that's unique to us either. That's being done uh, up and down the coast. And they've also, there's certain areas that have created tax districts similarly to, to us. Um, and then, you know, you have experts who will say that our project is an anomaly. Um, and if we replicated it elsewhere, it may not hold up quite as well. Um, and ultimately, you know, it is a Band-Aid. I think everyone can acknowledge that. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sac Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSacHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. I think um, it's also, who knows what's going to happen with the severity of the storms as as the ocean temperatures rise too. You know, it's that warm 80 degree ocean water that becomes the generator for massive hurricanes. And, you know, usually the water temperatures cool down pretty quickly, you know, once the fall comes and we don't have 80 degree water here, but as things get warmer, there's a much better chance that we're going to see bigger and different storms in the years down the road. And what we think we're ready to handle, suddenly you're getting a storm, kind of the likes that you aren't used to really seeing here, you know? Yeah, we're seeing issues with the rising waters, not just along the ocean front, but in, in the bays as well. And and I, I remember, um, which hurricane was it? Which That was the, the Superstorm Sandy um, and Sag Harbor Village. And how far underwater it was, was just remarkable to me. I, I um, That was actually the first really severe flooding event um, during my time here. And I had no idea that Sag Harbor was quite that vulnerable to flooding. And, and it, it was, it was really something. It was, it's, you know, it's something, if it's going to happen more frequently, the village is going to, is going to have to deal with it. And I remember Flanders and, and Riverside, um, had some similar properties and Riverhead too, had, yeah. and out and out up uh, North Fork Orient. You know the the road to Orient. Well, even normal days in Sag Harbor, if it's just like a, an unusual high tide or a nor'easter, I mean the Sag Harbor Express Building would you know we would have to put waders on to go in the basement, hmm. and all of the buildings along Main Street were like that. You know, not even that bad a, a not a, even a hurricane. Um, wow. if the if the tides in the wrong direction it's like you got we had mushrooms growing on the wall of the basement down there wow that's something <laughs> yeah yeah you know that sunny day flooding too so one of the challenges that we have uh on a zoning level is that we the villages they want to keep character and they don't want to have 
maybe four or five story buildings. They don't want houses that are over a certain height. But you have to reconcile that with the fact that FEMA comes in and says, you need to start at this height for your first floor. You can't you can't go lower. So now they're being squeezed from the bottom, but they're also being squeezed by the top from from regulations. And like, you know what, if, if somebody living on the ocean can't have that third story and they have to have two and a half stories, I mean, who's going to cry for them necessarily like they'll live. But um, when you have a village like Sag Harbor, where you're talking about multi-purpose buildings, you know, maybe they want a first floor business and they want uh, offices or they want residential upstairs. They have a height cap, but now like from what Annette said, you don't want to build a brand new building where there's immediately going to be flooding and mushrooms in the basement. So you're, you have the same height that you always had, but you're starting at a different level than you used to. And that level is just going to keep changing. FEMA's, you know, it's not going to happen on an annual basis, but maybe every 10 or 20 years, FEMA's going to keep saying, no, it's got to be built higher. No, it's got to be built higher. No, it's got to be built higher. And meanwhile, the villages are resistant to letting people build taller. Um, and you have to balance community character between how forward thinking you're going to be. Are you going to think like, hey, that house is fine? Or are you going to think, okay, it's fine now, but it won't be fine in 30 years. So maybe we have to do something differently. Yeah, I think I could see them having to change the height code in a number of years. There actually, I think the New York Times did a really interesting article about um, Charleston and, and the raising, they're raising historic houses down there and um, how they're basically legislating what can be done in raising those houses. And so they're allowing them to be raised, but it's interesting because the, the the underneath part has to be very specific and sort of match the historic structure. Mm. It's kind of fascinating because they're figuring it out. You know, whereas at the beaches down there, all the houses are raised with the lattice work underneath. That's not what they're allowing in like the historic downtown area. Uh, but that could be an interesting case study for, you know, how Sag Harbor might want to look at it, it, at it. But it's a little bit different though, because like the buildings in historic Charleston tend to be like, you know, Georgian, you know, brick and, and stucco, very, you know, grand structures as opposed to old, old wooden houses that a lot of, a lot of the wettest areas of Sag Harbor are your oldest like wood frame houses. And I don't know, I'm not sure how they're going to deal with that, but it's definitely a conversation I think puts overdue there on how they're going to legislate that down the road. Well, I've been to the ARB meetings where they've said like, you can't raise your house up to this height. Mm -hmm. And the thought is like, you know, just you're saying I can only raise it a foot and a half, but please give me three feet. Yeah. Because I don't want to be back here in 15 years raising the house again mm -hmm. when everybody's caught on to the fact that the flooding is just that bad. It's yeah. not, that's not an unreasonable position either. No question. You know, I'm, I'm curious too, Brendan, you know, real estate is, is your beat and and Michelle this series ran in our residence section I, I feel like if we zoom out and go a little bit big picture here this is a real crisis for the region's real estate economy you know it drives our economy and I wonder if in the future if more severe storms and rising tides and all of that makes living on the east end a little less stable, that it also may, might make it a little less attractive for people investing in those homes on the East End. 
I've certainly brought that up with some of my sources. Um, you know, I've asked them, do you see a time in the future when building on the ocean ends? And they have all said no, that it just will not stop. There is always going to be a pool of people who want to buy and live here. And I guess they can afford to take the risk, unlike most of us. Yeah, at that yeah. level, it's just that just rebuild, right? I guess. But but I wonder how much of that, you know, uh, pardon the terrible pun, but is head in the sand a little bit about this, that, that you know, there, you know, people are, people make logical choices with their money. And the logical choice right now, if you are a wealthy New Yorker, is to invest your money in East End real estate, because it holds its value. It's it goes up in value. You get a wonderful experience when you're here. You can use it all the time. You know, it doesn't take a lot to change that equation. And and if you're worried all the time about now I've got to own a property in in on Napeeg that I may lose, first of all. And second of all, every time there's a bad storm, which now is six times a year. I've got to worry about it. It starts to become, eh, it's just not worth it. I'll buy a house, you know, upstate. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's a bit different than owning a house on the ocean, Joe. <laughs> it is, it is. But don't you think? But but seriously though, I, I I realize I'm being a little bit of a Cassandra here, but I, I do think it it can turn. I mean, it 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 can become a lot less attractive when it becomes, you know, a crisis all the time, if you, if that's, you know, when we get to that point. So as we mentioned, these mitigation measures that architects have been implementing so they could build homes on the ocean that will meet FEMA standards, they will be um, resilient. You know, they'll have, instead of that unattractive lattice that you're mentioning that scene in the Carolinas, you actually see that on fire Island because everybody expects their garage level to flood or, or, West Hampton Dunes, West mm -hmm. Hampton Beach, you drive to the beach and you go past these houses, they're all kind of built with this idea that at some point water is going to flood through the garage in that first story. And that's why the actual living area is, is a floor up. Um, you can build in a way that houses will be resilient. And if you're meeting FEMA standards, you could actually expect to perhaps get uh, a FEMA check if your home is destroyed in a hurricane. You could also get flood insurance if you're meeting FEMA standards. And if you're investing in a house that's in a flood zone and you're pricing in the fact that you need to buy flood insurance, you know, that's all part of the equation too, right? It, it is, was this a valuable, smart investment to sink my money into a house on the East End rather than someplace inland where it's not going to flood? Well, th they are doing the math. And these new homes are actually going to be resilient for the next 50 or 100 years because we are planning ahead. And some people look at it and think that we're um, being too cautious because they don't want to believe that it's going to be as bad as it is. Um, and maybe if we got really, really good at sequestering carbon and, and making fewer emissions than we think we're going to get good at it, maybe things won't be as bad. But we're we're being very forward thinking in FEMA regulations on the East End, and the flood insurance companies aren't having it. If you're putting up a house, you're going to have to meet their expectations. So you have other houses that predate this. They are prone to flooding. And what's happening with those? Some of them are being raised up, as we just mentioned. 
some of them have the potential to be destroyed in a future flood. And there's two things that are going to happen. One, FEMA is getting wise to the fact that people are just letting their house get destroyed in a hurricane 10 years later. You know, they build a new one with FEMA money, their house gets destroyed again. They this has happened in parts of the country to some houses two or three times. And FEMA finally said, you know, what? we're just going to give you a check to move someplace else. So there's people who are going to buy houses out here, they'll get destroyed in a hurricane, and then they'll get paid off to move someplace else. Or there's other people that are going to, they view real estate out here as almost disposable. You know, there's perfectly good houses on the ocean that were built 15 years ago that are being demolished right now to build something new, because they're disposable to people with that much disposable income and that much wealth. So if they buy a house, and it gets destroyed 10 years later, that just gives them a wonderful opportunity to build a brand new house. And what everybody out here would love is for their home mm. to be destroyed by a natural event <laughs> so they could build something new without having to go through um, the preservation process. Well, that's an interesting take. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. Well, think about all the people that want to, there's somebody right now who is suing to tear down a Norman Jaffe house on the ocean. Yeah. Because they said you can't tear down this 1970s house because it's too iconic. And he's saying, well, it's not historic structure because it's not from the 1800s or the 1700s. It's from the 1970s. And at one point in history, the ARB didn't even want me to build this house because they said it was too ugly and out of character. Now mm -hmm. you're telling me it's actually the same exact owner who built it originally. Now the same board is telling me that I have to keep it. You know what he would love? He would love Hurricane Sandy 2 to knock down his house. Yeah. A nice hurricane. Yes. <laughs> and then the new house he builds is going to have to be up to FEMA standards, and that will be hmm. a 100 year house. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork wind farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. So I wonder, you know, are, is there a possibility, like given like the severity of um, was it Hurricane Ian down in Florida and the and the devastation down there, could it be that insurance companies are just going to, and I mean, you know, pull out of here in general and there's not, there's going to be a, a, a it's going to be difficult to get insurance. I mean, I guess FEMA is the only way to go with flood insurance, but even other types of hurricane insurance, you know, is that a danger that insurance companies are going to look at specific zip codes and say, no, you're in a hurricane zone. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. Yeah. That's happening in Florida. That um, second story that ran, um, I can't remember the name of the community, but uh, they have a bunch, like a lot of homes that no longer are eligible for flood insurance. I, I know I, and I'm sure a lot of people pay a hurricane premium, that we have to pay a premium on our homeowner's insurance that says if we are struck by a hurricane, if, if it's a hurricane force storm that hits, I believe my deductible goes up to like 10 to 10 or $20,000 that, that they will only insure the house mm -hmm. under those circumstances. Um, and a lot of that came into play after 9-11, actually, because 
they were looking for ways to sort of limit their their uh you know their uh liability liability thank you um everywhere they could in new york state and so here i think they they made it tougher to get homeowners insurance on the east end for that reason so yeah i, I think you're absolutely right that's going to be another way that this becomes a bit of a crisis for homeowners out here. It's going to get harder and harder and probably more expensive to get homeowners insurance. You know, I'm not in a flood zone, but my homeowners is expensive for two reasons. One is because it's poured concrete instead of wood. So to, to rebuild, it would cost a lot of money. Um, so they actually demanded to insure it for way more than we actually paid for it. Cause they're like, well, that's how much it would cost to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm looking at these numbers and I say, well, I don't get why I'm so high and I'm not in the flood zone. I'm not required to have flood insurance, but I have this incredibly high premium compared to my friends who, you know, they have houses that they're also not in a flood zone. They're stick built and like, you know, they're paying next to nothing compared to what I'm paying. And the reason I was given was wind. Mm -hmm. So you know, climate change isn't only going to contribute to flooding and storm surges, just the fact that there's wind. My house might be dry, but that wind says a lot about what's going to happen to my roof, what's going to happen if trees are falling on my house, what's going to happen if an object flies and, and comes through my window. So even those of us who are inland aren't spared the the expense and the danger that climate change is bringing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well. So Michelle, what's your, um, your, the last story of the series going to be about? Yeah, so the second half of the series really pivoted toward these sort of call to action stories. So we looked at things that homeowners can do at home um, to help the cause. So I think, um, you know, going into the last piece with all of these stories written and bearing all of that in mind, um, and we're just going to circle back and check in with everyone I spoke to the first story to say, okay, so we have some of these solutions um, for homeowners. Like, what do they look like in your respective towns? How are you planning on um, increasing interest in people participating in things like composting, electric vehicles, um, solar, like that kind of thing, um, and just seeing where we're headed. What has changed in this last year? What still needs to be done? Um, and what can we expect in you know, the road moving forward? And what's the 2023 series? <laughs> You're just going to have to keep reading to find out. Okay. <laughs> I will say, I, I think this series was terrific. And um, Bill and I uh, just recently did a Behind the Headlines, our radio show. And we talked about this a little bit with J.D. Allen, who was actually part of the series. You, you actually talked with J.D. Um, he is the managing editor, I believe, was, was that, I think I have his title right, at WSHU up in uh, Connecticut, the uh, public radio station. And he did a podcast series uh, that ended up being award-winning. And, and it was called Higher Ground. And we made the point on the radio show talking with JD. I, I think that it's fair to say that the media on the East End, and us certainly included, are talking about this issue. This is, this is not an issue that's under the radar anymore. We're talking about it, and we are trying to prompt conversations um, of substance to try and address this. And, and I think those conversations are taking place in the halls of government at the local level, at the county level, at the state level. 
I, I think they're happening, but uh, time is wasting, right? I think that was sort of, sort of the, if we had to have uh, a big takeaway from the Rising Tide series, Michelle, uh, time is wasting. Certainly, right? certainly. And there's so much left to be done. I think it's impossible to have a conversation about any major issue on a local, national, international level and not have climate change factor into that. It is in the background of everything. So it's time. It's time to start having these conversations in earnest as we're now sort of hitting our stride with the COVID-19 pandemic and see what we can do. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the, the pandemic really put a pause on, on, on everything. There had been kind of a, a momentum that we were seeing as far as climate change and you know, and and all those different levels of government focusing on it and, and doing something about it. And then that pandemic pandemic just just um, stalled everything, right? right? One crisis at a time, please. Right. Yeah, yeah. Please. One existential crisis at a time. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of that. You know, <laughs> if, if we want to preserve the future, we have to juggle these things. We don't get to say, you know, uh, I. I'm worried about getting to work on time. I'm not worried about, you know, how many, how, what the emissions of my car are. Yeah. You, you know, you have to worry about your contributions to climate change. Yeah. Well, the good news is we have a big uh, rig off of Wayne Scott right now that's putting in the cables for the wind power. So it's going to be a interesting, I, I think in five years, it's going to be interesting to look back and see how much that project makes a difference. Uh, I think it certainly sets a tone for not just the region, but the state. Well, well, what's happening now is when we add wind and solar, what we're really doing is, is we're creating capacity for the increased demand that we have on the islands because our demand just continues to go up. And as we encourage people to get away from fossil fuels and to use more electricity, there's going to be even more demand when everybody has an electric car charger. There's going to be more demand, more heat pumps. There's more demand because we're getting people off of oil and natural gas, which is a good thing. And it, it, it does help the climate. But we're not at the point where we're creating so much solar and so much wind that we're able to take old fossil fueled fired energy generation off the grid yet. That's when we're going to have a turnaround. Mm -hmm. In, in fact, Carl Grossman just wrote recently about the fact that we may start to see proposals for new uh, nuclear power facilities. Um, it's sort of a new age nuclear power that they say is safer and, and, and all that, but that could end up being something um, that, that gets added to the mix. So that's a whole, mm -hmm. a whole other thing too. So. Sure, sure. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a movie. Listen, <laughs> nuclear is part of the package. We just have to be smart about where we put it and not put it in highly populated places like Long Island where people can't evacuate. We have to put it in, you know, remote places. Well, we also have to figure out what to do with the waste, which they still haven't figured out. And it's still sitting at Millstone because Yucca Mountain was never built because they realized it was on a fault line and nowhere to bury it. And or like Carl once said, nukes in space. <laughs> There's some real cutting edge um, technologies coming too, which are really interesting about generating electricity that um, apparently they're getting very close on some of them to making it um, functional. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. Well, that's a good way to end of the year. Yes. I, you know, 
I, I think we have a lot of uh, optimism. We can have a lot of optimism heading out of 2022. I think there's some things locally that we, we saw the community housing fund mm-hmm. be approved. I think that's going to be significant. We saw, we just talked this week about the um, septic grants won't be taxed moving forward. I think you're going to see a lot more of that money being spent and used in replacing septic systems locally. And we may start to make some headway on some of this stuff. So Michelle, I think you've helped set the agenda for climate change. Uh, It's just up to local governments to figure out a a plan of action to try and get something done. I think you did the hard part. (laughs) Just, just, you know, I, I think. I agree. Yeah. I think you're, you're, you're really did the heavy lifting here. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for doing it. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.